This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Army veteran, amputee, author, and altruist Noah Galloway. So in this incredible conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his dad's hand amputation, Noah's journey into the military, the IED that took his arm and leg in Baghdad, his powerful physical and mental rehabilitation journey, fatherhood, Operation Enduring Warrior, the No Excuse Charitable Fund, his book Living With No Excuses, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 people now, so all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Noah Galloway. Enjoy. So Noah, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, I appreciate you having me on because, you know, not just the podcast, but I follow you, the social media page and have for a while. So I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Well, we have mutual friends, which is the the amazing men and women in Operation Enduring Warrior. So we'll get into kind of your journey there. Yep. But that's, I think, how our paths crossed initially. So yep. where where are we finding you today? Where geographically are you? 
I am uh, in the center of Alabama right now. <clears throat> I, I live uh, real close to the geographical center of Alabama. I'm just south of Birmingham. This is I grew up in Birmingham, and after I got injured, this is where I found myself. So let's start there then. Tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, okay. and how many siblings. Uh, so I grew up, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up, I have three sisters. I have one older, two younger. Uh, my parents are still married. You know, you don't hear that a lot. I think it's because they were too poor to divorce, <laughs> but <laughs> they're still together. Um, my family, you know, I grew up, I was just talking about this with somebody this morning about money and about learning how to manage money. And my parents, unfortunately, didn't know how to manage money. And therefore, we were never taught how to take care of managed money. In fact, two of my sisters were lucky enough that they married a man that knew how to take care of money. So that helped them. Me, I got lucky by uh, making uh, a little bit of extra money at a certain time in my life. and was able to pay things off, but I'm still learning how to manage it. But yeah, my family was just your typical middle America, just struggling to get by day to day. And that's the kind of family I grew up in, just trying to get by. I think there's so many of us that suffer from that. I did for a long time. And it wasn't like I was spending on myself. I was just in chaos. So when you lined everything up, I had the money for the bills that I had, but I was so chaotic that things were getting behind. And now you have the compounding interest. And my wife now was my absolute rock when it, when we got married. And she came in and I was like, look, I'll do all the kind of hero shit can you be the hero with my finances? So, you know, when it comes to fixing tires and, you know, doing all those kind of areas that I can do, all right, then, then that's your skill set. But yep. I have the humility and my ego has been tempered enough to be like, babe, this is not my strong suit. This seems to be some areas that, that you are great at now. So uh, I think a lot of us kind of have to take a step back and go, of the two partners, if you're not single, mm -hmm. you know, who is best at it and just kind of submit yeah. to them. Yeah, and that's what it is. And I think too often people are worried about who has what role. No, it doesn't matter. And my wife, no, she came from a family that understands money better. And so when we got married a couple of years ago, he has been a huge help. In fact, I mean, it was my idea. We put me on a budget. I'm the spender. I'm on a budget I, too. You know, <laughs> there you yeah, go. And my budget, like, you know, it's, it's cash because cash is harder for me to spend. You know, I can use Apple pay or a debit card and walk into a gas station and buy one of those sugar-free Red Bulls a dozen times a day. And I will. But now with cash, I won't. So it's, it's yeah, it puts me in my place. So what were your parents doing occupation-wise? So my mom, I don't know what was going on when we were real little. She wasn't working. She was uh, taking care of us kids. And then anytime she worked, she was... Uh, you know, a, a secretary for somebody, you know, something like that. My father uh, has done construction my entire life. And interestingly enough, he has one hand. He lost it when he was 18 working in a plant and it's below the elbow. They tried to save his hand. They couldn't, and they amputated it. And throughout life, he's just found himself getting into construction. So he's taught me how to, we've done, he's taught me how to roof houses, plumbing, room additions, siding, all that. So it was that was actually a huge benefit that I would realize later on that I had with my father. 
so firstly, I mean, if you if you're able to kind of illustrate, because you've got a lot of people in the the medical and first responder professions listening, what was the industrial accident that actually happened to your dad, and then what was his you know kind of mental and physical recovery from that? Because we're in a very positive, adaptive era now, but I can imagine when he was a young man, it was probably different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was not. No, much different. Um, so this would have been, I wish I knew the exact age, but this probably would have been in the early 70s. Um, he was, it was a machine from what I've been told, it, it squished scrap metal and it was supposed to be shut off and he was doing something. His hand was in it. It squished. Uh, he said when it squished, he didn't feel it because it just squished the nerves and he turned around to the guy behind him. He's like, we got to take you to the emergency room. He said he didn't feel the pain till later. And then he got addicted to painkillers. And that uh, was something he went through for a while and eventually found his way off of it. But he self, he is, I have a father that, you know, unfortunately is battling a disease of alcoholism. And, you know, so it was just one addiction to another. I, I have an addictive personality. I'm aware of it. And because I'm aware of it, I am very particular about the, the addictions I choose, like fitness. You know, those are the things that I'm drawn to to try to make sure I don't go down those roads. Because unfortunately, there are people out there that would rather make money than take care of people. And they're in the medical field. Look at the people who have made money off these painkillers, you know, and they knew it. They knew it. And they've let it happen. And then on top of it, you know, not to get on my high horse about it, but people are worried about marijuana. Yeah, our grandparents screwed it up 100 years ago. There's nothing wrong with it. What is wrong is alcohol. They're not a single, and I'm not telling people not to drink. I've drank, but there's nothing that comes from it. Not a long time ago, people thought that, hey, you drink one glass of red wine a day, it helps you cardiovascular system. Wrong, not true anymore. You know, alcohol is a poison that we're allowed to buy, and people are worried about this, this other stuff, and they shouldn't be. And my father, I think, could have benefited from a lot of things more holistic than what he ended up in. And I think he battled with that. His entire life, when I got injured, uh, he he never thought that I asked him, I said, you ever think one of your children would lose a limb? And he said, never. He was more worried that he would lose another one. And as we talked, he has still wrestled with his injury and, and just the mental side of it because he's never taken care of it. He's never taken care of his mental state. It's crazy how many people have had on this show that their early life was relatively traumatic and i'm sure observing you know your, your dad's struggle with pain pills and obviously i'm sure probably alcohol later in life we don't factor that into our mental health when we're in uniform and they go you know what happened to noah well it was because he lost his arm and his leg that's what happened to Noah. it's yeah. like well you're discounting what happened to that little noah and all the things that he experienced leading up to that. So you're talking about the the, the, the battles that your father has with this legal addiction, and, and I mm-hmm. agree with you 100% that we send so many addicts into the shadows because of our ridiculous drug prohibition laws. But when you look back now, what? how did that manifest into trauma when you were young through your little eyes? Well, for you know, if we're going to talk about young Noah, there was there you know just like any other kids in the in the eighties into the nineties there the our parents were gone they were working uh, and we were just you know just there and there was no connection like I you know I have a six month old child now and 
we're at our six month appointment and the doctor said, oh yeah, here's y'all's book. It's a children's book. She said, there's an organization out of Boston that has discovered that reading to children, that's huge in comprehension, even at six months. And so this program has started where at every doctor's appointment with our pediatrician from six months till six years, we will be given a children's book. Everybody is. And that's amazing because our children need to be read to. They need to be cared. They need to be loved. And a lot of us weren't when we were younger. And it's no fault on our parents. I'm not attacking that generation. They're, they know as I look, my kids are going to be better parents than I am. I told them I need them to be, you know, but we've learned so much more and we understand things. And yeah, there is a disconnect with my parents that is unfortunate, but you know, it's, you know, we lived in a world that was very shaky and, and yeah, we were, we were just struggling to get by. And I was a kid that uh, took full advantage of it and just run amok around town. Like I wasn't, I was about to say I wasn't too bad. I mean, I did break into a car once or twice, but you know, these are things that I was a kid with no direction in life and was just doing things. And now when I see people or hear about someone getting and attacking, you know, a young man that has done something wrong. Yeah. No, I'm not saying they don't, they should go unpunished, but it's like, let's not write this person off because I have met a lot of people that have come to me and they think I'm inspirational. They think I'm this amazing person, but they don't know that I was a, there's a lot of things I've done in my past. You know, there's that saying every uh, saint has a past, every sinner has a future. Like that is real. I feel like too often we just, when we hear about someone that does something bad, we jump on them real quick and we don't think about, Hey, let's think about how we can take them in and resolve this and help make this person a better person instead of ending up in the wrong direction. Cause I'll tell you, I went into the military because of nine 11, but I wanted action. I was at the age that I needed to test myself. And so I wanted to go in and be part of the fight. And so I went to the military just for the action. Now someone can say, well, what about these guys that are out, you know, dealing drugs and running around and, and gangs and stuff. Guys, those young men who get in trouble and end up in prison, they're no different than the guys who get in trouble and end up in the military. We just ended up in different paths because we're looking for the same thing. We're looking for camaraderie. We're looking for people that are just like us, that are a family, and that we can bond to. And we want action. We want adrenaline. Young men go through that all through life have done that. How many tribes that we've learned about that they do different ceremonies to become men? So that's what it is. And it's just... You know, you know, I say that and it's like, oh, OK, so it's so a, a prisoner is just like a veteran. No, it's not. I'm not saying that. But there is a correlation. There are similarities. We've got people that are getting into trouble because there's not the right care in their life. And that's what's unfortunate. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. It's something I talk about all the time. So we see this with our own eyes as first responders. And then I work alongside people that have been through this, too. We are all blank canvases when we're we're born. That little six-month-old that you have right now has the potential to be anything amazing and also anything horrendous and everything in yep. between. And then, you know, how they're nurtured and how they're parented and the environment they grow up in and how they process the trauma that is inevitable is, you know, what will send them down that path. So when you have, in, in, as a paramedic and a firefighter, we see 
the homeless, we see, you know, the prostitutes, we see the addicts, um, even the dealers, you know, these are people that we've seen the households that these yeah. children, some of these children in, like they are fucking doomed if they yeah. don't find a mentor or something to kind of sway them out of this horrendous lifestyle that they're in. And then also in uniform, just like you said, when you're trying to become a firefighter, for example, my very first test I did, I was very honest about a couple of substances that I tried, you know, almost a decade prior, and I got the uh, the uh, application thrown in my face. I was like, oh, yeah. okay, so honesty isn't important in the fire <laughs> yeah. service. Yeah, military is the same way. You want me to be a choir boy. So yep. from then on in, I'm like, oh, no, I'd never do that. No, 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 that's so unethical. <laughs> You know, and it's yeah. all bullshit because a lot of these substances that I used are now being found to be extremely helpful in the world of yeah. mental health. But yeah. this is so this is the irony is whether it's the addict in the street or even I would argue some of the the CEOs of these pharmaceutical companies, we have a mental health crisis because even those people, how can you sleep at night knowing that your products are killing people unless you yourself have a mental health issue? Yeah. Yeah. And mental health, you know. Mental health is so, – I, I don't even know where to start to get on my next tangent because, you know, I think about people who are so – they act like they're concerned about everyone's mental health and they want us to improve mental health. But then at the same time, people will turn around and attack someone they don't understand, a person that is going through something they do. Someone posted something the other day. I won't, re I won't use pronouns just like – I won't entertain talking to a schizophrenic imaginary friend. I want to be like, well, if you meet someone who's schizophrenic, you're not talking to their imaginary friend. You're talking to a part of their brain that thinks they're someone else. And you're going to communicate with them. If you meet someone that wants to be referred to something else, hey, I don't I don't understand it, but also don't understand how photosynthesis works. But that doesn't mean it's not a thing. This person feels a certain way. And if it makes them feel better to be referred to as, as something else, who are we to judge it? If it's mental health, then we should really be sensitive about it. So these people who want to have a problem with it say it's mental health and they want to attack them. You know, we have children that are battling mentally, physically with who they are. It's just a handful of them. But that handful has a high suicide rate. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why are we being mean to these children or anyone in that case just because they're different and we don't understand them? We as humans we are, you know, we've evolved a long way. We are an incredible species. We have, you know, our thumbs. We have our brains that work way more than any of the animals on this planet. But we're also the species that has to take in a lot of different nutrients from different places. Most animals can just eat one thing. And we are born with deformities. We are born with defects. Our brains are, you know, can be disrupted and changed. And it's, we are all similar and different. And it just drives me crazy that someone can not know anyone's situation and attack them. And it bothers me. I was working out this morning and a friend called me. He has torn his bicep on his, on his, on his arm. And so he's been having to use one hand. And he said, Noah, he said, I, you know, he said, I've always respected you and what you've done with your injury. But he said, me having to go through it is a whole different perspective. He says, you honestly don't know what someone's going through until you're in their shoes. And I remember when he said it, I didn't bring it up to him, but I thought about how we're so quick to attack people that are different than us. Now, I'm not saying people who are concerned about what's going on with the children or, you know, if there's a concern of surgeries and things like that being too soon. I get that. Uh, but attacking somebody 
and making them feel bad and unappreciated and unwanted is a one of the worst things you can do. Because you know they say that even a broken heart that's more painful than any physical pain we experience. And so being felt like you're not wanted, you're killing people by give, making them feel like that. Well, I think we're in a vicious circle because the ones that are saying the hateful things are also going through their own mental health crisis. So I would yes. argue that actually they see themselves in the mirror of this other person. And that's why the freaking libtards get so triggered by the fascist right or, you know, whatever ridiculous yeah. pigeonholes you want to put on people. But I think yeah. we have a you know, a, a Western global mental health crisis. And this is why so many people are angry. And this is what drives me crazy about the absence of leadership. And I'm talking about the last, you know, decade, couple of decades in this country is you need people to unify. You know, you need people to bring people together, especially God forbid there's a virus that sweeps across the planet. That should be everyone banding together. And when you're yes. seeing all this division... That tells me that there's zero leadership. So we need to be demanding leaders in our homes, in our communities, all the way up to our country that pull people together and put kindness and compassion back in the forefront, just like these bloody religious texts that people thump when they're talking about stuff and then do the polar opposite in their own life. <laughs> yes. You know, and I think you're exactly right. Like, yeah, one, the anger and the projection that people put on each other, it is their own mental health. And then, yes, the there was a huge lack. We saw the lack of leadership all over the planet, all over the country, you know, all over the world when COVID happened. Because well, the way I viewed it is, oh, crap, something is spreading very quickly, and we need to see what – you have to stop it before you can even at least control it before you figure out what it is. You know what I mean? Because thankfully it turned out to not be as severe as we thought, but, you know, but – Scientists say this isn't the last time this something like this is going to happen. You know what I mean? These things are going to happen and you have to band together to prepare in order to control it. Yeah, absolutely. And then also what should have been, you know, the the main conversation was let's improve the health of the entire planet. And I'm kind of a broken record on this topic, but in some countries it was and they already had healthy people like Scandinavia, for example, because they walked the walk for decades before. What really killed me about the absence of leadership in many of the countries I'm referring to, like where I was born, where I live now, for example, is there was none of that. It was disregarded. You know, yeah. people aren't healthier two years. It wasn't a lesson learned. And so they're nope. even more vulnerable for the next thing that comes along. So another yep. absence of leadership. Yeah, because you know what? There, I, I feel there should have been a better, I feel like, explanation. I feel like there's a lot of people who were left to figure it out on their own, and their minds took them to really dark places, which then they got on the defense, and then they got upset. And and that's where I think that a, a leadership that was that could explain things better is what's necessary. To not attack the other side, because both sides do it. I'm not even... I'm not even attacking one particular leader. You you show me a leader we got, like you said, in the last few decades that doesn't do that. Everybody is playing a game and what it comes to down to is money. Well, then you got to figure out, well, okay, well, how do we make the things that are important to us at least be valuable enough that it becomes something that everyone's doing it. But then when it becomes valuable, people jack the prices up like insulin and things like that. But like you said, talking about things of the past, I am a big fan of psilocybin 
and things like that, reading the research that's happening and what's going on. And that is something that I wish would grow uh, tremendous. I, I see it's happening in a lot of states and I want to see it continue to grow because things like that, I think, will be a huge help in mental health. I agree 100 percent. Well, back onto your road as a young man, <laughs> you ended up becoming, you know, not becoming, you you were a tactical athlete and you maintained that level of fitness throughout life. What were you playing and what were you doing athletically when you were in the high school age? Um, well, let's. I'm going to back up to middle school age because I was in middle school. I think I was in fifth grade and my older sister was in high school. And she was a cheerleader, and then she was worried about, you know, always worried about how she looked, you know, wasn't eating healthy, starving herself because that's just she was a kid, didn't know any better. But she had these VHS tapes. Tony Little, I don't, you, you know, Tony, you ever heard that name? Wasn't that his um, his contraption was the gazelle, almost like a um, elliptical looking thing? I think, yep, that's what it was. So, but he had a workout videos, and my sister had them, and I got to where I'd get up like at four in the morning and go in the living room and I'd work out. I was like, whoa, this is fun. So then I got into fitness and I started sneaking into the gym at the community center at, you know, at 12, you had to be 16 go and I'd work out. And I, I just got, I got obsessed with fitness. So it became my thing, but I didn't play sports. I hated school. I dropped out of school in the ninth grade, uh, went straight to work, was living on my own by the time I was 17, but fitness was something that was my passion. You know, it would come and go depending on my age and what was going on, but everything I did was physical and that's how I lived my life. So I worked out and I did manual labor. And for me, it was the perfect combination and and life seemed perfect. And now I dropped out of school, but my best friend growing up was like you'd mentioned earlier, talking about you know, you see situations where kids live in families that they're not, and then they see the things they see. My best friend growing up, both of his parents were crackheads. You know, I grew up in that house seeing it or watching it, everything that happened. And I remember he and I talking about it. I said, buddy, I was like, you're either going to grow up and be like them or be better than them. I mean, I was a young kid. I remember saying that to him. Unfortunately, he is now a heroin addict that lives with them and I had to cut him off a long time. Around the age of 20, I had to walk away from him. It was probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life because I loved that man, but like a brother, but I could not be around that, especially as I started to have a family of my own. And uh, that is where I saw how easily we become our parents. When I give speeches, I love to point out to when I'm, I'm able to share things with parents. I'm like, hey, you can talk to your children till you're blue in the face, they become who you are. I mean, how many times have any of us woken up one day and looked in the mirror or something and you see a glance of your mom or your dad? You know what I mean? We do things because we are them and we've learned from them and our children are learning from us. So I always point out to people that talking about leadership, leadership starts at home. Leadership isn't something you turn on and turn off depending on where you are. And also leadership isn't somebody who's always barking orders. A leader is a leader who is showing the way to do things. And like my children, I'm not the perfect father, but I try to lead by example. You know what I mean? I try to talk to them. When I screw up and if I get mad at them, I apologize. I show them that, hey, we make mistakes, we own them, and then we 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 learn from them. And, you know, you could tell them that, but until you show them, that's what's important. It's not until you become a parent that you realize how ridiculous the term, because I said so, actually is. <laughs> 
Oh, it's the worst. In fact, I am like, I, you know, it's, oh, cause I said, you know, when they're younger, you end up saying it, <laughs> you can't help it, but it's great when they get older to really, I try not to use that term because it's like, I want them to know why, you know, because my, my parents wouldn't, sometimes my dad was bad about like, when I was real little, he wouldn't let me stay the night with somebody just so he could say no. And I, as I look back, I was like, he was just trying to flex his power because he wasn't spending time with me. Nobody was, you know what I mean? I wasn't doing anything proactive. I was literally sitting there in my room. You know what I mean? So it was like, what did that did no good. And so for my kids, I'm like, yeah, Hey, you want to go to your friends? I don't need you. Your room's clean. Every bed's made. All right. Yeah. You're good. Hey, go have fun. You know what I mean? I, I'm not. I, yeah, I, I try to be very honest with my kids. And if there's not a way to do something, you know, I let them know that. And when I do that, then they they understand things better. Their expectations, you know, they understand that, hey, things cost money. And we can't just just because we, quote unquote, may have the money in the bank. That doesn't mean you have the money to spend on that particular thing because it's not worth it. And they, they're, they're learning that. And it's been really good because we're trying to show them that, hey, this is just how you live your life and you take care of yourself and take care of those around you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing. You, you hear so much negativity towards changing your mind. And going back to your parents, a, a phrase that I've heard a lot of guests say, which I love, is like they did the best with what they could, you know, with the tools that they had at the time. Yeah. And you look at the kind of political arena and it's like, oh, so-and-so was wishy-washy. It's like, well, no, you, you know, how you and I were taught how to to exercise and how to eat when we were young is so different than than now how people that were missing an arm or a leg when we were kids is so different than the adaptive community now so you evolve and it's okay to go you know what i was wrong i'm glad you said that yeah yeah you know and it's kind of, i'm because that is funny yeah what's impressive is to see a politician say oh whoa this you know i was wrong this is bad i would love to see that but then they don't but then you kind of understand why they won't do it because they will be seen as wishy-washy or they may give power to the other side. And it's a game. It's a power grab is all they're doing, you know, so it makes it very difficult. But, yeah, a real leader will be able to say, no, things have changed or I see it differently now or this is what we're going to do to improve it. Well, you talked about dropping out in ninth grade. Of course, most people will be like, oh, you should have stayed till the end and got your diploma. But I've gone through... I graduated high school, went through you know higher education as well, initially in England, and then quite recently actually finished my degree in America. And you know you look back at the tools that you get from in this country several years and a huge student debt as well, and you kind of look back and look at fire academy and paramedic school, for example. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, what? Well, that was hands-on training. It was a fraction of the cost. It was a lot shorter time, and I had a, a career where I saved lives. My degree. Of course, there are positives from it, but I wouldn't say it was worth the time and the money that I spent on my money. particular journey. So talk to me about that. As a parent now, looking back, and you have kids that are going through the grade system, talk to me about you know that particular choice that you made, and then you know how does that parallel and maybe the, the, the trade school mentality of some of our young men and women versus the higher education route? Yeah, so um, that's actually perfect. So yeah, so when I dropped out, yeah, it was. So my older sister was already a teacher at this point. So my sister has her doctorate in education. So, I mean, and my youngest sister is a special ed teacher. So there's, and I have a lot of teachers in my family. 
And so when I dropped out, my older sister got mad at my parents for allowing me to do that. But in my parents' defense, this was the child I was. In ninth grade, I didn't go to school for like a month. Uh, I As soon as I, the first day of school, when I got my books, I put them all under my bed in my room because I was like, well, eventually I have to turn those in one day. But I had no, I was not going to, I didn't do, I was in honors classes only because two years prior, I took it, you know, the state test and scored the second highest in the school. But I did, I hated school. So when I got in ninth grade and a month later I turned 16, I was laying in bed and my mom, before she went to work, she come busted into my room and said, you're going to either go to school and pass or you're going to drop out and you're going to go to work or you're not going to live in this house. And she left. So I'm sure they had a discussion. It was a lot for her to muster up the energy to bust in and say that and then leave. <laughs> and I remember thinking, drop out. Oh, my God. Like, that's a huge decision. But I was like, well, I can't pass. <laughs> you know, I, that's not going to happen. So I did. I dropped out. Now, what was disappointing was not a single person in that school. Well, from the office all the way to every one of the teachers, no one asked a said a word to it. They were like, oh, right, turn this in, turn your books in. Uh, one teacher, she was at lunch. She jumped up to let me turn my book. I was like, well, I can wait. Only one teacher asked me if I'm sure this is what I wanted to do. Miss Tudson, my honors English teacher. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, well, I wish you the best. No one else even tried to ask me why or encourage me to, or give me another alternative. They just let me do it. And that is what I have a problem with is that there was no care or concern for what was, in fact, as a child, there was a lot of things I did. A, I, I, there is a, I was, me and my wife were talking about the other day, going through different traumatic things of our childhood. I remember being in elementary school on picture day and showing up and I had dried blood. Apparently my nose had bled that night and it was, it was on my lip, you know, it was on my, you know, my upper lip. And I took pictures like that. Not a single, I was that kid that Noah's like, they're like, well, that's just that kid. You know, I, I can't imagine seeing a child that would be just left like that, you know, about to take pictures and like, Oh, what's that on your lip? Oh, well, you know what I mean? It's like, Whoa, that is crazy. And I've got on a tangent on school for a second. I'm sorry. Um, when it comes to school though, I told my sons, I said, cause my oldest son just graduated last night and we've looked at colleges. We looked at trade schools. That's when he, he, uh, he, he got more interested. And then we looked at the military and I told him, I said, buddy, let's be honest. Do you want to go to college? He's like, no. I said, well, I don't blame you. I said, you know, some people enjoy school. Some people don't. I said, well, let's look at other options. And so we did and uh, almost went trade school. Then he got excited about the Coast Guard and doing law enforcement with the Coast Guard. So that's where he's going to go. He's going to basic training for the Coast Guard. And I'm like, buddy, this is, you know, because some people like school. Some people don't. I hated school. Uh, I've tried college three times. And haven't finished a semester yet. <laughs> and in fact, the other day I told my wife, I do actually want to get a degree. I want to learn, you know, in, in social work, there's some mental health stuff. I, I told her, I said, you're going to have to help me do it. I can't, I don't know how to do it. Uh, so I, I tell my, my kids know that I dropped out, but they also know that, and I'm real with my kids. I actually, I spoke to a group of kids not too long ago and I was honest with them. I said, oh yeah, just like you suspected, most of these subjects, these classes you take, you'll never need them. You'll never need them. I was like, isn't it great to have someone stand in front of you and confirm that? But the other side of it is the importance of taking those classes, doing those tasks that you don't like, 
we even if you have the best job in the world, there are parts of that job you are not going to enjoy. And what doing those classes do is it teaches you to stay on task even when you don't enjoy it. So that's what I told my kids. I was like, look, you may not like this subject and you may never use this subject, but you're going to prove to me and all of your teachers that you can sit down, study, learn, and show that you, you've learned something and complete a task because that's what's important. And I feel like enough kids don't hear that to realize, oh, that makes more sense. I had a guy, Passy Salberg, on the show, and he's uh, he lives in Australia now, but he's from Finland and was one of the, the kind of advocates and educators on the Finnish uh, school system. And if you look at, you know, the quote unquote best schools in the world, usually Finland is right there at number one. And it was amazing because the philosophy was the holistic child. And when I have this vision of you and I can, I can see it because I was the same. I was a farm boy and my my. Um, elementary school my parents paid for and there was a lot of very wealthy families who sent their kids there and um, we were the quote-unquote poor kids of that school <laughs> and you know yeah. so it was it was like the sooner they get rid of us the better so I totally yeah, had, yeah. And all my pictures I look like shit you know clothes are dirty <laughs> and all that stuff but it's all good yep. <laughs> but you know that that lack of concern when you were leaving that really kind of reminds me of that Finnish versus the American British system, especially American. So we have these standardized tests and these schools have to perform and these teachers have to get so many people to pass because I think we got some great humans in those roles as teachers. But if we're missing a child who might be struggling, might be in a dangerous situation that's saying, I'm just going to drop out because we're focused on, well, you know, academically he was a bit shit anyway, rather than what's going on in his life. I think that's yeah, a perfect I wasn't illustration. Helping. I was yeah, being there wasn't helping their numbers at the end of the day, their test scores. So, yeah, that's exactly like you're exactly right. They wanted to get somebody like me out. And because, yeah, there are, I look, two of my sisters are teachers. You know, I have a, a cousin that's a principal. You know, I have all these, I love teachers and, I, and, and respect those who do it. It's not, they don't get paid enough. You know, it's, it's a very daunting task, you know, to take on to care for these kids, but they do, they love the kids, but too often the classes are looked at as just a class instead of individual children. And a lot of times teachers, they're like, well, if I'm going to keep this job, I have to keep a certain percentage moving forward. And realistically, re realistically, a certain percentage are going to fail and they, they accept that. And that's, where the problem is now, my sister, when she got her doctorate and did her dissertation, it was she did this whole thing on reading. She's a reading specialist with children, but she made sure I was there at her dissertation for her speech because she talked about the child that everyone forgets, the child that no one wants, the child that they want to push away, the child that they don't support and try to keep them moving in the right direction. And she said, those are the ones that get tossed out. She said, but you know what? We're always tossing out the best people because they're the ones that figure it out and find a way to move forward. And they don't, and it's like, you know what? You're throwing out these intelligent people because you're worried about getting the numbers right. And it doesn't work that way. And it shouldn't work that way. We should be just, because if, if I can, if I dropped out in ninth grade with eighth grade education and I am found myself where things are going good, well, yeah. It's because I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, but it didn't have to go this way. In fact, if I could have gone through, I've told my kids like, yeah, life's great for me, but it was a pure chance that I ended up where I am. But what was, I wish I could have done was been that student that pushed himself, challenged myself, learned what I could, got through school because 
I've got a 15 year old that's going in 10th grade. And here it is. My older son just wants to get his diploma and get out of there. I, I get it. My other son, when we were at graduation last night, he's pointing out what all the different chords mean. And he's like, I've already earned these. So when I graduate, I've already got these. I'm going to get this one and that one. He's all he's taking extra classes this summer. He wants to be a pediatrician. He's going to go to college. That's his dream. And he knows that's what he wants to do. So that's what I'm in support of. The other one doesn't want to go to school. Hey, that's okay. Let's find what works and support that. And so, but it's, it's those tasks that are completed in high school. The reason I tell my kids that is because too often, even now, I come across things that I should do easier, but because I didn't learn it, I don't know how to take notes. I would admit that. I, I'll be 42 this this year, and if you sit me down in a classroom right now and say, hey, just take some notes, I, w- I wouldn't know what to do. Like anytime I've tried it, I'm like, do I write down everything they say? <laughs> you know what? I don't know what to do because I never learned it. Well, my family mirrors what you just said as well. My bonus boy, my stepson, he absolutely hated high school. He he did bare minimum, but it was very intelligent. So he could like last minute test take and he'd, he'd be able to scramble back. But he ended up becoming a mechanic and absolutely loves it. My my you know youngest, my, my little boy, um, is the polar opposite. Off his own back, he has joined JROTC and become a you know a, a leader in that that um, class. He's a varsity track and cross country athlete, and he's like, I'm going to run for University of Florida. I'm going to go to veterinary school, and you know, so again, two different uh, personalities, two different academic routes, but both thriving. But if you just put them all in a little box and say, No, you will go to to college. You will do this. You will do that. Well, again, this go back to that why. Well, why do I need to go to college? Well, for the mechanic, you don't. For the for potentially, you know, veterinary surgeon, you do. This is the path. So I think it's amazing to 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 see that conversation happening, us to question the higher education route that we were always told was the gold standard oh, yeah. of childhood. Yep. And it, it, yeah, and you know what? I uh I'd point out to to my kids that, you know, if you look at when I look back on the kids that were in honors classes with me when I when I dropped out, and those kids hated that I was in honors class with them. <laughs> a couple of times they voiced that to the teachers, like, why is he here? I'm like, I agree. I don't know why I'm here either. <laughs> but um I see a, I look back at the kids that were the straight A students, you know, and just great students, you know, got everything done. But then I look at them and they're not they're not struggling in life, but they're they're in dead end jobs. You know what I mean? They're working that nine to five. Just, it's like, I don't know what, I, I don't understand how, I, I couldn't imagine being stuck in that world. Uh, but it's like, I think there's so many opportunities and other options to go into. So I've told my kids, like, decide what you want to do and go after it. I don't care if it's crazy. I don't care if you tell me, hey, I would love to be the person that is dressed up as goofy in Disney World. Well, I'd be like, well, you better start training because I worked at Chuck E. Cheese as a kid. And one time I dressed up as Chuck E. Cheese and it's hard to move around in that, that uh, mascot suit. So, you know, I would encourage them. Say, hey, you better go to mascot school because it's like whatever you want to do. I want to support it. Just try to be a good human. And I've also told the kids, look, you can be as rich as you want to be or you can live off as little as you want to be. And as long as you're happy, you got to find that happiness. Because I know people who are rich and people that are poor. And I know people that are rich are miserable. And I know people that are poor that are living their best lives. 
Well, I heard you talk on Lewis Howe's podcast, which is, as we discussed before we hit record, was quite a long time ago now, um, about how 9-11 was a pivotal moment for your choice to enter the military, like so many men and women in uniform. So talk to me about that day through your eyes and then your journey into the army. So I was I was in college. This was one of my first times trying college. And well, first I'll explain how I ended up there. Years after being dropped out, four years later, I decided to get my GED, considered the military, wanted to go be a fireman, thought I'll go through the Air Force, let them pay for it, and I'll be a fireman. Well, I went to the Air Force, and they said, well, we can't take you. You have to have a, a, a degree. You know, not a degree. You have to finish high school. But the Army and Marines will take you with a GED. So I went and took the GED and scored real high, and they convinced me to go to college. So then I started going to UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham. And the best part of that was that first semester, I remember I was sitting outside reading my psychology book one day and I was sitting outside the hall where they do the orientation and some kids came out. It was, I hadn't seen these kids since I dropped out of school and I stand up and I'm like, Hey guys, they looked at me like I should have had a broom in my hand. They're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I go to school here. <laughs> oh, they were not happy about that. But I, so I was in college and then this was in 2001. So September 11th, 2001, I, I didn't have class that morning, so I slept in. And my friend that I'd mentioned earlier, that my best friend growing up, Justin, he calls me uh, on the landline and says, "Turn on the TV." And I turn TV on, and, you know, and it's everybody's talking about pilot error, you know. And then you're watching the news, and you're worried about everyone in that building. And then I watched that second plane hit, and I remember as they were filming it live, you know, people screaming in horror around the cameraman when it happened. And then suddenly it was, you know, the, you know, then you have the Pentagon and that and in uh, Pennsylvania, the plane goes down and it's like, suddenly it's pilot from pilot air to we're a country under attack. And, you know, that was, that was crazy. It was terrifying. And I went for a run and I, I remember just running. I remember seeing the gas stations, everybody was lined up. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And I was like, you know what? Uh, we're going to go to war. And I want to be part of it. So I have an uncle that was a Vietnam. He's a Vietnam veteran, paratrooper, 173rd. He always told me if I went to the military to go airborne infantry. So I'm right up front. So I went to my recruiter. I went to the Marines first. Uh, they have great commercials. So I went there and they were like, you, you can't decide your job. You'll go through basic training and they put you somewhere. I was like, what? I don't know if they always do that. But at the time they were. And I went to the army and they said, no, you can come on in the infantry. So I got airborne infantry, went to basic jump school and then ended up with the 101st out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that's how I ended up there. And then part of the invasion of Iraq in 03 and returned back in 2005. Actually, it was that first deployment. So, you know, I go in to test myself. I mentioned that earlier. I, I you know, love my country, but there's also a little bit of ego and, and wanting to challenge yourself to, 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 to have the desire to go to war. Uh, so I did that. And in war, I loved wearing my, the uniform. I loved the men I, I served with. I was like, this is it. This is my career. I'm going to either die an old man. I'm either going to retire an old man or die in combat. I'm okay with this. I reenlisted in Iraq to stay. And we returned back to Iraq in 2005. And we we're in the triangle of death, Southwest Baghdad. And that was a brutal deployment. And that was a deployment that we were, I was driving a vehicle, just a couple of us and a few people in the Humvees rushing down a road in the middle of the night with our night vision goggles on. 
And with night vision goggles, you can see well, but you can't see everything. And I didn't see a tripwire stretch across the road. And when my front tires hit it, it detonated a roadside bomb large enough, large enough that when it hit my door, it threw this 9,000-pound armored Humvee flying into the air, into a canal running adjacent to the road. And I, of course, you know, don't remember any of it. It took, I didn't wake up for about six days, woke up in the hospital. And it was a lot for me to take in, losing two of my limbs. You know, I mentioned early on in our interview that every job I had was physical. I worked out. I did physical in the military. I worked out at the gyms there. I did PT every morning. And we were infantry soldiers. We did everything physical. It was Perfect. So then when I woke up in the hospital and two of my limbs were gone and all these other injuries, that was my lowest point in my life because I was like, I'm done. I can't do anything. You know, of course, I have my father standing there missing his hand. And there was even moments where I was like, well, you're just missing your hand. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, I'm I'm missing way more. You know, and it says you just find things to be mad about. And I was I was really struggling. Um and I, I can keep going. I don't want to keep rambling. I don't want you to ask a question. I, I can keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't apologize. Before, because I know there's going to be a lot to the physical and mental journey from there on in. So just prior, I want to put a, a question in that I always ask people that were actually in combat. And the reason I ask it is we talked about, you know, the the, the media and, and, you know, the the polarization and the division. When it comes to war through a civilian's eyes, we get a very polarized view, either kill them all, stack bodies, or they're all baby killers. And in the middle are the real men and women, you know, arguably almost children that we send overseas to fight with our flag on our shoulder that see you know, the real part. So it's a two-part question. The first part, regardless of the politics that sent you over there, um, because obviously 9-11 happened and, you know, the people were in a different country than Iraq. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, you know, of what sent you there, was there a point where you perhaps witnessed atrocities where you realized that there were some horrific people that, you know, was justified having boots on the ground in that particular moment? No. Um, <laughs> now, was there, did we have opposition? Did we, were we fighting an enemy? Yes. Does that mean we were supposed to be there? I, I look back, and I'm like, those guys were doing the same thing we were doing. Somebody told them that these people were bad, and they're oh, just like the locals. You know, it was hard. When we invaded Iraq in 2003, it was kill, kill, kill. I mean, you're invading a country, and you're going to war, and you're like, yeah, let's do this. Well, then you hit Baghdad, you, we push into Mosul, and then we settle in, and then you get to meeting these people, the locals, and you're like, dang, what is going on here? You know what I mean? But you're still being told this is what's happening. You know, Saddam's this evil person and this and that. Of course, I also noticed, you know, that people back home had no idea what was going on. And were told some weird stuff like, well, when we first invaded Iraq, we had bad intel. We were told to shoot any yellow and white vehicles. Those are all taxis. And that's what we did until they were like, oh, these are just people. What kind of intel is that? What, strongest military in the world and we're shooting taxis up? Yeah, that's because we had no intel at all to what we were doing. There was, you know, so then you get there and you're just, we were just a bunch of punk kids walking around once we were there. Uh, and I got, I would get on to guys that would just like, just be too overly aggressive. I'm like, what are you doing? You can't do that. But the problem wasn't them. It was that when we, once the quote unquote war was over, you should have brought in another unit 
that was prepared for hearts and minds. Bring us back, train us, and get us back out there. But the hearts and minds, they never work on. And there is, it's hard to take a kid and say, kill, 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 and then overnight say, okay, now we need everyone here to like us. Now, that sounds weird, but when, what should have been explained was, hey, look, when you're a jerk to the locals, guess what? They're not going to give you any information. In fact, when after I was injured, I remember there was a preacher in Florida that wanted to burn a whole bunch of Korans. You remember that? Yeah, that fucker was here in Gainesville, yeah. and he just wanted to okay. sell his book. Yeah. So when that happened, I was already injured and on a morning radio show was doing it for fun. And someone brought that up. And I was like, listen, here's what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan or in Afghanistan right now is you got troops trying to convince the locals that we're the good guys. But then the other side is trying to tell the locals, these Americans don't care about you or anything that has to do with your life. In fact, they hate your religion. You want proof? Boom. Here's an American in America wanting to burn your religious text. So that preacher was killing American lives. That's that is that's what I believe, because here it is. When we were there, you are trying to get information. Yeah. We should we have been in Iraq? No. Hindsight's 2020. So what? The way I look at it and the way me and my friends have discussed it and we've lost friends. And over there, it's like, hey, we were doing what was at the bus. And we did it to the best of our ability. That's all we could do. You know what I mean? Did I have moments that, oh, I had moments that really affected me mentally when I was an asshole to somebody, overly aggressive. And I'm like, whoa, what was that? You know what I mean? Like that that person did not deserve that because most of the people are just civilians, just trying to live their lives. And they're stuck in the middle of a war. And that right there was I actually found that. I loved working with the locals. In fact, like I wanted to go special forces because a part of special forces is training locals and working with them. And that's all I wanted to do. In fact, while I was there, I was like, I could have seen me ended up in the, you know, what was it was a red cross, whoever, you know, that go and travel and, and work with people because it was amazing. That's what I enjoyed. But yeah, the, I, I stay out of the politics of it, but no, the war in Iraq, I, the, to this day, I don't see a single reason except for that they were the third largest uh, producer of oil. Well, I mean, that was through my totally naive civilian and somewhat younger eyes then. I remember going, wasn't this guy from Afghanistan? Why the hell are we going yep. to, to no, no, Iraq? No. He's not from Afghanistan. He's from Saudi Arabia. We are not going to mess with them. People See, people don't realize that. Actually, we protect Saudi Arabia. We have an agreement so we can attain their oil. They're the second largest producer of oil. We're the first. We're just sitting on ours. But we're not careful. We're going to be sitting on a bunch of stuff we don't need if they, if fossil fuels go away. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think that's what the whole intention was. And in fact, when we invaded Iraq, here's what was really blew my mind was there was we were not we didn't protect anything, any artifact. Christianity has a lot of history in Iraq, and it got looted and destroyed. But the only thing that we protected, I didn't have to go and protect it, but a lot of the 101st and different groups did, oil fields. So you tell me what was important. Yeah. Well, and even with, with the story of the preacher, I remember when that happened, it was right up the road. It's where I do my jiu-jitsu. It's where my, my university was, University of Florida. And this guy was, you know, posturing about burning these Korans. And I'm like, I bet you, I 
fucking bet you that piece of shit has a book and this is all a publicity stunt. Sure as shit. I didn't know that. Yeah. You yeah, know, I didn't why know I'm that. an asshole or whatever it was called was coming out. And uh, <laughs> so that, so again, whether it's some of, some of the things behind the wars, whether it's something, you know, on a smaller scale, but who'd have thought that that hateful self-serving action would have a ripple effect and cost lives, you know, thousands of miles away where our men and women yeah. are trying to protect civilians. Yeah. And that's exactly how it worked because, you know, it's it's hard to convince people that you're there to to, to help them. And then at the, on the other side of the coin, you're treating people like shit because we you would get in the habit of just going and just being jerks, walking through town, just being jerks. And like as I realized what we were doing, I really battled with what we were doing. <laughs> Well, you talked about you know wanting to do some more of that service side and possibly with a you know an NGO or one of those other organizations. The other side of this this um, question, because it's equally important and equally um, never portrayed on a lot of the TV stations, is kindness and compassion. One of the worst things that the media does is say, "Oh, like like right now we're at war with Russia." Well, you know, Russia is the devil versus the Ukraine. And obviously, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And I would argue that a lot of Russian people have no interest in invading the Ukraine because they just want no, to get yeah, on with no. their jobs. So yeah. talk to me about moments of kindness and compassion that you witnessed, whether it was amongst your own men and women or whether it was the people that you were there to protect against these extremists in their own country. When we invaded Iraq in 2003, there was, you know, we went all the way from Kuwait all the way up to Jeff, Karbala, never sleeping in the same place twice. Just t- and what they discovered as we were moving forward, someone, you know, Intel did say, okay, they're, they're, these weapons caches are being stored in schools. They were hiding all their weapons in schools because they knew we were coming. You know, it was talked about prior. So they they did that. And all. so they closed all the schools down and had all these uh, ammunitions and, and weapons there. So then we just went bouncing schools to schools and finding them. Well, a lot of these schools would have a family that lives there, you know. And so then we would take over this school and stay there the night. But we wouldn't kick that family out. And every time we'd stop, it'd be a family and they'd have some little kids. Oh, I'll tell you what. You you can see the softness of a soldier's heart when you a kid with a little ball shows up. Because <laughs> then next thing you know, you're kicking the ball with them, you're playing with them. You know, and a lot of men who I've seen be aggressive when they needed to, or you know, be aggressive when they didn't need to, be the softest, kindest person to a child. And that those were moments where it was just ah, oh, it was incredible to spend time with these kids, uh, and just and just be there because you know a lot of us were missing our own children back home, and you would just enjoy this moments. And it was also you would have this this sense of wow, these are tough kids. You know what I mean? Like you know we we talk about you know America and this and that, and it's like man, I. I'm I'm glad my kids uh, aren't this tough. I, I don't want them to have to go through this kind of trauma early on in life. You know, I'd rather them build it up a little bit at a time. And I couldn't imagine trying to raise my family in that. And that would just break your heart. And you could you could see it on any. So we would give out candy and snacks all the time. And that's where the compassion came in. 
So when you're on Lewis's uh, podcast, um, you know, I think his book is about basically the mask of masculinity, if I remember rightly. Um, as I progress through this, a lot of us that wear uniforms um, tend to buy into that two-dimensional myth that is masculinity that a lot of us were raised mm -hmm. on. You know, you don't cry, you've yep. got big muscles, you suck it up. Yep. But then you hear these stories of kindness and compassion of, of a lot of these warriors, and you look at the samurai and the Vikings, and when you really dive in, there was the yin and the yang, you know, the soft and the hard. And of course, when you're going into a gunfight, when I'm going into a structure fire, we're not thinking about unicorns and kittens at that moment. But after you're processing it or after you're caring for someone that you've pulled out or, or a kid that you rescued, now is that soft side. So talk to me about, you know, the, the evolution of your perception of masculinity. We'll get back to the actual injury and growth. But, but I mean, over the last few decades, have you witnessed a change within yourself? <laughs> oh, oh, huge. Okay, so I dropped out of school and went straight into i did landscaping i did construction you know like i said i did roofing and then i worked in it when i turned 18 i worked in a plant i worked night shift this was a job that um it was we got a kick out of whenever a new guy would come in because you'd make bets on how long they last most people would quit you know even before the first break we had people that would go one guy was like i'm going to the bathroom and he never came back you know it was fun <laughs> to work that because i thought as a man you got to have a tough job you know what I mean? Everything I did had to be extremely difficult. And that's what I thought being a man was. And, you know, I all, you know, lived off that for a long time. I think the change is still happening, <laughs> but I've, I've softened a lot. Uh, my wife, I give a lot of credit for in, in opening my eyes to a more holistic lifestyle, more understanding, and then looking at myself. You know what I mean? We are quick to, I I know I am. I can I can get mad and just blow up and and you know especially on the road I can have road rage, get mad at somebody, assume something, whatever. But now I've discovered, oh no, this is this is all me. This is happening because of me. This isn't someone else isn't causing it. I'm doing it to myself. What's going on? So I started doing a lot of reflecting and self work, and as I'm doing it, I see a change in myself. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm softer, I'm more understanding, and it's been really good for my kids. You know, I, you know, I heard some other day say, you know, they're just giving out participation trophies. And I'm like, you know, people get on that. But look, elite athletes find themselves in elite sports that push them on another level. Most kids that are playing soccer, or whatever, they're not going to be professional athletes. And if somebody wants to give them participation trophies, Trophy, that's fine. Let them be seen and recognized. Let's not hold back on that because I, as a man, think that it's okay sharing and showing that people are seen and are cared for. I want my kids to feel that. As a leader, you want those below you to know that you actually care about them. Then they'll do anything for you. And so, you know, I've, I've tried leading as a leader where I was a jerk, and then I've led as a leader more from a sense of a standpoint of my sisters as teachers. Cause I remember my older sister, she was talking to me about her class and she's always been able to do this. She could tell you every one of her students, what they're good at, what they're bad at and this, you know, little Johnny over here is struggling, but we're working on it. And I was always impressed by that. So then by the time I got in the military, I was a different kind of leader than they, than the people I worked with were used to because I would work with those as I became a leader differently like i had these i was a team leader and i had these two guys um 
Robertson and Ramirez. And Ramirez was the kind of guy that if he messed up, I could pull him aside and say, Ramirez, you're screwing up. Oh, am I? Yeah, let's don't do that. Let's fix this, do this instead. Roger that. Robinson, Robinson was gave to me, I think, by somebody because they didn't like me. Because <laughs> Robinson <laughs> was a lot to deal with. So with him, he was the guy that I was like, hey, look, Robinson, here's what we're going to do. I get here early every morning. And see, in the back of the company, there was a Coke machine. So I was like, I get here early. And I'm going to be here at 510. But at 530, I'm going to walk out here. And if you're not standing at this Coke machine, when you do get here, you're going to get in the front and the rest. You're going to stay there through formation, everything. And then we're going to do PT. And I sure hope we're not doing a lot of push-ups. And so for like a week, he was always there. And then one day, I walk out to the Coke machine. He's walking up to the Coke machine. I'm like, nope, doesn't count. And I had to, you know, you have to, just like your kids, don't make a threat. And not backing it up because they 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 realize that you will give in, and so I didn't mean to him, but I just made him do push. I made him stay in the front leaning rest like he's doing push ups, and he stayed like that for you know an hour. I'm sure he cheated in between when I went looking, but and then when we did PT, we did a lot of push ups. I did that on purpose, and then he was never late again because he just knew, hey, you're late. It's just gonna make it suck for you. Let's not do that, you know. But it you had I had to show him something different than I did Ramirez. Does that make sense? No, it does. Completely. And that came from, yeah. And I got that from my sister. And I, the other, actually, not too long ago, my sister made a point about kids with overactive imagination. She said, you know, some kids, and this was the kind of kid I was, you tell me what, okay, I'll get suspended for this. Why? Well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm still going to get suspended, but I'm going to make sure it's worth it. Oh, I get suspended all the time. And I was, I always made it worth it. <laughs> so my sister said, yeah, some kids, you tell them what the punishment is and they, well, they will accept that. She said, but overactive imagination kids like I was, you don't tell them what the punishment is. You tell, she said, she'd tell them, you don't want to know what's going to happen if you do that. But then kids like me, our, our imagination goes crazy. And we start thinking you're going to do things that you can't even legally do to us, but we're scared. We don't know what it is. You know what I mean? So there is, you have to work each person differently. And I've learned that from my sister, the way she teach, she would teach a classroom. And it's like, okay. Yeah, mass punishment is you know, a big military thing. It works, you know, certain, it gets people to motivate each other if they're screwing up. But when you really want to train and improve the soldiers under you, well, then you have to start breaking them down individually because we all have different learning patterns. And the same thing is why we're struggling with schools. You know, why ADD, ADHD is a problem when it's debated that it's not really a problem. It's just the school system isn't set up for people like me that can't sit down in the classroom. <laughs> Yeah, and then you give them a whole bunch of candy and chemicals in their food and no exercise, that <laughs> yeah. doesn't help. Yeah, yeah. Well, you talked about participation trophy. Just for a segue, obviously, we'll talk about Operation Enduring Warrior. Um, I love Tough Mudder, Spartans, all those things, and it just grinds me when I hear people talking about the whole participation trophy thing. Firstly, I've never witnessed any child be given a trophy for zero effort. They're always yeah, out there yeah, you know, <laughs> for doing, you know, whatever it is, triathlons and, and yeah, football games yeah. and all kinds of stuff. But then I look at the, you know, the the marathons and the the tough mothers and spun. What happens when you cross the line? They give you a participation trophy. Yes. You didn't win. You know what I mean? So, but <laughs> but do you negate the that fact you just ran 13 <laughs> miles, went over obstacles, barbed wire, electric fences, all this shit? But you didn't win. And this is the point is that usually the ones that are throwing that rhetoric are the ones with the big belly and Cheeto dust all over themselves. Actually, yeah, not doing anything. we should be walking the walk and encouraging the kids. And as you said, some people want to be the best in the world. 
it's called a game. Most people, you just want to encourage them to get outside and play. You know, and even even make your own yeah. rules up. You know, you don't have to be death by referee as well. So I think that whole thing has not motivated a lot of kids. It's probably demotivated a lot. I mean, just got to get back to again, kind of that that um, finish model with school. Like, just go and play, get outside. You know, yeah. make rules together. You know, enjoy it rather than if you're not winning, you're a piece of shit, which is what people seem to tell. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? And it's it, it blows my mind because. You, you want to tell these parents the chances of them being a professional athlete is pretty slim. You know, I mean, the probability, and it's like, well, it, there's nothing wrong with, like, I want my kids. I, here's what I tell my kids. I said, I don't expect you to be the best, but always give me your best. Because I learned doing Tough mutters. Like, when I started doing them, I was injured. And I, I wasn't winning anything, but I was completing it. And that every time I did it, I was just completing these obstacles. And that's what was important. The first one I did – I struggled with the obstacles. Then the goal was to be able to do them on my own, on my own. And I got to where I did until Tough Mudder really started adding really weird stuff. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. And I guess they got mad that the one-on-one like a guy was doing the obstacles. <laughs> they made them harder. <laughs> um, but uh, I did a lot of work with Tough Mudder. They've been really good to me, and I, I love their events. I actually want to start getting back into them again. It's been a while since I've done one. But you're right. There is a – you are given something. You know what? And I – would rather my kids see that I, I run races and I do things and I go have fun. I play in the mud because that's what they're supposed to do also. And they do. My kids, my kids are active. You know, a lot of you always hear people talk about kids these days. When I hear that, I say, that sounds like your kids uh, because uh, my kids these days are doing great. <laughs> yeah. Parents these days, what we need to say. Dang, James, you're on it. I'm a right dinosaur right now. Yeah. <laughs> <you're saying. laughs> All right. Well, then going back to the fact that you literally wake up in a hospital bed, missing an arm and a leg um, with no recollection of the event. You were a very physical person, not only in your actual ability, but that would seem to be where you, you know, your your passion lay. That was your outlet. Um, and now you've had that kind of identity stripped. And I had a very far less acute version when I hurt my back as a firefighter and I went from being able to climb you know tens and tens of floors with all the gear yeah to not even be able to put my shoelaces on or pick up my young son so talk to me about the physical and mental journey you took from consciousness through to you know I know a lot of highs and lows the next five years um I you know I'm gonna say arrogantly that the physical part was less trouble than I thought it was going to be. Now I say that arrogantly because some people, especially if they're injured, be like, well, mine was much harder. No, I'm not saying I didn't struggle. There weren't hard times, but it wasn't as hard on me as the mental side. The mental side of it really got me because the injury was okay. And then there was a little bit of pride when I started I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm actually pretty good at doing stuff with one arm and one leg. But the mental side was, and I always point this out to people because there's a lot of talk about veterans and suicide. And I always point out to people there's another group that has a very high suicide rate, and that is NFL football players when they retire. And it, it's not that they are broke or that they didn't enjoy themselves, but it's because they had a, a dream and a goal, and then it was completed. And usually football players retire at a young age, and then they don't have direction. They don't have a place. They don't know where they're going. And I battled with that when I got injured because I was like, because I was more judging myself for being injured and being like, what am I going to do? There's nothing. I can't do anything now. You know, and then I, you know, just worked on 
being as mobile as I could, but I was like, I have, where am I going in life? I'm just, this is it. This is just who I am. But I didn't realize at the time that I had to evolve and then find that, you know, myself and discover, okay, life's not over. Let's, let's do something, you know? And I, I started doing fitness and then that gained attention, which ended up on the cover of men's health, which then led to me going on Ellen DeGeneres, which then had the phone ring and survivor called me another show called. And I was turning all of them down because my kids were young. Dance with the stars called. And I, I told them I'd, I'd never seen their show, but I'd heard of it and they wanted me to do it. And I was trying to get out of it. And I was like, I can't move to LA for that. Said, that's okay. We'll send the dancer to you. And, and so they sent the dancer here and we rehearsed and did it. I ended up doing the show, the 10 weeks and, and coming in third place. And I, I'm, the reason I'm bringing that up is because I'm pointing out that life then got really good and moving forward and then got real busy. And then COVID happened and everything stopped. And I thought, okay, well, I'm done. This was a great run. Um, uh, I'm good with this and I'm going to be quote unquote retired. But then I found that sitting around drove me crazy. And then as COVID kind of faded away, things get picked up. People would want me to come give speeches or ask me to come on their podcast. So there were still little things here and there, but I refused to just stop. And so another thing that I've done, and this is because of what I experienced when I was injured and that, and that, uh, that loneliness, sadness of not having any direction. So I refuse to ever let that happen again. So now I stay in a bunch of different things. For example, I'm an apprentice right now to be an auctioneer. And my friends oh, really? were like, really, really, they're like, what? Why are you doing that? I was like, why not? You know what I mean? Like, I, here it is. I do a lot of keynote speeches at a lot of gala events. I love it. It's fun. But when you're the keynote speaker, you never come back. You know, you spoke. They, they bring someone else in. Well, then they have these benefit auctioneers. And, you know, auctioneers, you, you think of people who talk real fast. Yeah, those are out there. But those are selling to professional buyers. Benefit auctioneers their job is to have fun with the crowd, get them motivated, excited, and buying things. And I've actually found that I'm really good at that. I love working crowds. And I have a charity golf tournament. My first year, I did a, a silent auction. And then before we the second year is when I became an apprentice, started learning auction stuff. So I did my own auction, and we raised way, way more money because people got excited. But the reason I bring it up is because I tell people all the time, just because one thing has ended doesn't mean you have to stop or just because something else hasn't ended. If you've got free time, I'm also the backup bus driver for the after school care at my local YMCA. I want to stay busy and stay active and I refuse to stop. And because I've seen that when you stop, it's just, then things stop and I don't like it. <laughs> not good for my mental health no well i think that's the problem and like you said whether it's an injury whether it's retirement you know you have this mm -hmm. sense of purpose you have this identity you have this tribe which you mirror you know i think the weight of gold the sports documentary did a great job mm -hmm. of showing that as well these some of these people have been training since they were young children you know not yep. wanting a participation trophy and reaching the pinnacle and then they're not you're not you're not going to make the next Olympic team or, you know, you've, you've got to the point now where you're too old at 26 and, you know, you're, you're kind of farmed out and then, yeah. you know, then what's next. So, you know, and you see the same in the military and first responder professions. So I know, you know, you talked about some low points, some, you know, the, the alcohol and the DUI. So walk me through that because I think it's so important for people to hear 
that you can climb out. A lot of people are in that oh. that absolute depth at the moment, and I think the the, oh. the growth stories yeah. are so important. Oh, I'm yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because yeah, see, people that I've come across that you know, saw me on Dance with the Stars, you know, they're they're like, oh wow, you know, and and they think that I got injured and just like, oh, I'm gonna get back in shape and then I'm gonna go do this, and I'm like, no, there was like five years of struggling that I went through. And in those five years, like, yeah, I, I got a DUI and then I, well, I, the judge, you know, we took, he was on a help me with it and I didn't do what he wanted me to do and was not, you know, I I wasn't blatantly disrespectful to him, but I just didn't care. And so then he, uh, it was a contempt of court threw me in the County for 10 days. And that was where, I did a lot of, you know, had a lot of time to think for 10 days. And I realized that because I, I also love talking to people. So the entire time I was there, I was just trying to find out everyone's story. What are you here for? One guy was like, what are you writing a book? I was like, oh, who knows? Maybe I will. <laughs> but I got to know them. And it was really interesting because as I talked to these guys, I remember there was this one gentleman I talked to who'd been in and out of juvenile detention facilities, all this. Here he was in his mid twenties, just, and he's been in and out and, I was like, I told him, I said, you know, because when I first got injured, I was already, people were having me speak, even though mentally and privately, I had no right to be telling people anything, (laughs) but I, you know, I was just doing it. Well, here it was, I'm sitting in here, I'm talking to this gentleman who'd been through all this. And I told him, I said, you know, I get the opportunity to go and speak to schools a lot. You know, I share my story and I can talk about my mental health and my injuries, but you can speak on things that will connect to people I can't connect to. I can't connect to a child that's been in and out of juvenile detention facilities, you know, has battled with drugs and all this, but you can't. I was like, you know, because I remember thinking you can make such an impact. And of course, then when I got out, that was it, you know, and and moved on. Uh, But I ran across the guy again years later, and he still remembered the conversation we had. And he was inspired by it. But then I had to share with him. I was like, man, it inspired me because actually what it did was I realized I was not as bad off as these other guys. That sounds mean, but I had to be like, wait a minute. There are men in here that there's a guy that I'm saying, hey, you, I can see where you could improve things. And he's in way more trouble than I am. So it's like I am not as far in this hole as I think. So before I dig in any deeper, I should start trying to pull myself out of it. Now, I always point out to people that, you know, just like in movies, things don't just fix overnight. It took time. But what I did was I found something that was – I always tell people you have to find something stronger than your fears. You know, fears hold us back from so many things, so many important things that we'd enjoy. Fear holds us back. So you have to find something stronger than your fears. And mine are my my children, my four children now. So it, back then it was my three children uh, because I knew that who I was was the example I was setting for my boys and for my daughter. And I needed to improve that. And it's, I still screwed up and made mistakes, but my kids were my motivation to – not make this mistake again, not do that. You know, just let's get better. Let's get better. And it did still drives me to this day. And I think that's why I had to have another one, a six month old. I was like, well, I got to keep this moving. <laughs> so I had to keep, you know, keep it going because they are my world. And I want to be the best leader for them that I can to hopefully help them be just good people when they go out there in that world. Cause that's, that's terrifying to think of your children leaving the nest, but you want them to be good people. And I'm home. I'm trying my damnedest to just, to do that, even with the mistakes I've made in my life, 
I'm trying my best. And, it, you know, and I do. I'm very grateful for my life. It's Once I started changing and changed the way I was eating and my fitness, I, you know, I don't expect people to run tough butters like you and I have or, or pose for Men's Health Magazine, you know, but taking sick care of yourself, eating healthy is not hard to do. Uh, you know, it may be challenging at first. I always tell people, you know, ease into it. You know, gradually start cutting back on things you shouldn't be eating. But people don't realize how important it is to take care of yourself. And I love to point out to people, you know, there's those that you ever you ever you, you don't see as many smokers anymore. But well, because people vape all the time. But when you see someone, you're like, you know, you really shouldn't do that. And they're like, yeah, I know. Or you know that old saying, well, you got to die of something. Remember, you know, how people would say that. Yeah, and they're right. Well, I, will, I always say to someone when they say you got to die of something, I say you're right. But what if you choosing this habit doesn't kill you immediately, but it puts you in a severe state and your children have to quit what they're doing in their life to take care of you? That changes people's mindset because when pe people don't want to think of others having to care for them, you know, most, I mean, most people don't want that. And so when you point out, hey, those cigarettes may not kill you immediately, but it may put you, you know, you may be in a, in a bad place and people have to take care of you and stop their lives. So, because I, I know I would, I would hate for my children to have to stop what they're doing and, and interfere with their families because I chose to do something my entire life that put me in a bad place. And, and I love pointing that out to people because I think it gets them thinking. I hope it does. No, absolutely. And it's just really sad because I think vaping is, is, seemingly less harmful than the actual cigarettes especially the modern day cigarettes with all the crap they put but in there i can't there. imagine I, but i can't imagine it because those are chemicals that are burning yeah no i mean they're both terrible they're both terrible but the, what what kills me is that there are still young boys and girls that are starting smoking i get going yeah. from cigarettes yeah. to vape i think that might be a, a step down you know, and obviously people, you know, sometimes will use that for, you know, 5-MeO-DMT yep. or, you know, uh, C, uh, THC. But oh, yeah. with, with nicotine, with old-fashioned cigarettes that we know how awful they are and it's categorically going to make your life so much worse that we're still getting young people in an environment where now people are saying, don't smoke, it's awful for you. Our parents' generation, they really didn't have that at first, and they did get hooked, but it kills me to see children starting to smoke cigarettes. Yeah, that that see, yeah, because, yeah, because we, we know too much. That's like the other day, I hadn't seen this, and yeah, my dad smoked, was smoking the car in the wintertime, windows rolled up. The other day, I was driving and I got behind a truck and a guy was in the truck smoking and, and his kid was in the car with him. And I was like, you never see that anymore. And it blew my mind. Cause like, yeah, when my dad did it, he didn't know any better. No one thought smoking years ago, you know, way before my dad was around, they used smoking as a way women smoked to lose weight. You know, Marlboro was originally um, sold to women. And in fact, in the marketing world, they are, famous for being a company that successfully turned their product from a female product to a male product overnight with the Marlboro man. Yep. Yep. And didn't he die of lung cancer? Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> he did some anti-smoking campaigns at the end, I think with the, the trach yeah, and isn't all that, that crazy. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy that he ended up with that uh, condition and being that position he was in, but it, it was, it was a, a wake up call for a lot of people. 
Well, you mentioned obstacle racing. So talk to me about how you first met the guys and men and women from uh, Operation Enduring Warrior and the things that you did with them. Well, so I, first I started running obstacle course races on my own. And uh, there were a couple of groups that would go out, injured veterans and just be seen, but nobody was doing them and completing them. So I was one of the first guys to start doing it What's awesome is most of them now don't know who I am, but when I was back, when I ended up on the cover of men's health, I had, I met all these people with different disabilities that got into racing and they said it was because they saw a video of me doing it. And that was awesome. You know, it made me feel really good about what I was doing. Um, so that was another thing that just added to my um, need, the, the positive things that started happening in my life that kept me going, moving forward. But my, uh, I got it. An organization reached out to me, and at the time, this was pre-Operation Enduring Warrior. And same people, but there's there's a couple of people that, that are gone, and they changed the name. But regardless of that, how it started was they used to take injured guys, and they would be at the finish line. And these able-bodied veterans, in honor of them, would run these races in a gas mask, never breaking seal, you know, with the filter, cuts off 20% of your oxygen. So, I mean – very daunting task, whether it was running or rucking or whatever it was. So it was all because one of the guys was interviewed and they were like, you know, why do you do this? He said, we got men and women who will go the rest of their lives, you know, with these injuries. I can be in discomfort for a couple of hours. I was like, well, that's powerful. So anyway, they reached out to me and I told them I, I love what they're doing. Super impressed. I said, but I don't need a trip. I think they were going to do a race in, in Hawaii or something. I was like, you know, I'm good. And then they're like, wait a minute, you you want to run the you want to do the event with us? I was like, yeah, I mean, that's what I do. You know what I mean? So like, okay, at this point, they never had someone injured on the team. And so we go to do the Batan Memorial Death March. That's in White Sands, New Mexico. And uh it's, tw- it's, an, it's a marathon. It's 26.2 miles. Uh, it's a really difficult marathon to run, and a lot of people go and walk it. You can do the light, where you're just walking it without any weight. You do the heavy division, which you have to – they weigh your ruck at the end. It has to be at least 35 pounds, and you have people running it. And there's the half. Well, so we go, and I'm on the team, and I told them. I was like, hey, look, guys, because we're in uniform. We're all matched. I said, look, I'm going to have to cut the pants leg off of the left leg because while we're out there and I'm sweating, I've got to be able to take this leg off, get the water out, put it right back on. So the, I remember one of the guys was like, well, man, we're not going to be in unison. I'm like, look, I got to do this. <laughs> so I cut the pants leg off and then I'm already, you, know, you see, I missed my arm. We've got our rucksacks and we take off, you know, when this thing starts, it goes. And um, long story short, I, uh, I finished, uh, actually ended up in the hospital afterwards, but the amount of tension, the attention that we got. And I told them, I was like, look, this isn't because of me, but it's because there was someone with a disability visibly on the team. So then everything changed. And then there was a change in the company, in the organization. It became Operation Enduring Warrior. And then it became no race is ever done without someone that is injured. And so you have a team of able-bodied veterans that they earn a spot to be on that team. Uh, you have those that are supporters that are, you know, just there. But the main team is they earn that spot. And it's very difficult to make it on the team because what those 
men and women, well, one female is the only female that's ever earned the spot because it's really hard, is guys like me that are injured need help. You know, we've got, you know, uh, we had a guy that was missing both of his legs and a hand. So we had this rucksack made that the able-bodied men and women and Meg, the woman, would take turns wearing him as we ran the race. And then they'd take him off, take the bag off, and he would do the obstacles. So it was, it was incredible. And uh, so that became the whole standard for Operation During Warrior. And then what's really good about it is it started bringing a lot of these guys who have been injured and lost that sense of a team. You know, we talked about that earlier. And it makes you feel like you're part of something again. And it's really good because it also keeps guys from self-medicating with alcohol, eating crappy food. Because when your team is counting on you, look – most people don't want to be the one, you know, they want to be, they want the team to be proud of them. They want to show up and be ready. And so that helps a lot of these injured guys get out of those dark places. That's what I love about operation during warrior. They, they're doing amazing things. No, they truly are. The first time I ran with them was uh, a law enforcement officer, Drew Strokes, who um, was actually, it was when there was one of the hurricanes in Puerto Rico and they were offering relief, um, and they brought a family over, and so Drew went to a Publix, a, a grocery store here, just to get this family some food and some clothes and some, you know, some supplies. Um, and a just a freaking psychotic lunatic gunned him down. He'd always wanted to, to kill a police officer and shot him in the Publix parking lot. Now, by a miracle, from the first responders to the the physicians in the hospital and the nurses, he actually survived, even though he died multiple times on the on the table. Um, and I got to run with him. And it was amazing because I did the interview with him prior to the event. Oh, yeah. And then after. Oh, yeah. Did you know? So, so I, I interviewed him through a mutual friend before. And then he ran with Operation During Warrior. And I literally sat with them at the very end. We went into a tent. Um, Joe DeSena gave us a little area to, to do the interview yeah. with. And just listening to that self-belief start to creep in again and and not be identifying simply as his wounds but actually what he can do rather than what he can't do it was absolutely incredible so i've loved that organization ever since yep yeah them and there's another one that's great with uh uh first responders is uh oh, i can't believe i just drew a blank um deep dog impact assistance and it's I always point out to people that Groups like they work with veterans and first responders. And I always remind civilians that first responders are a smaller group. Therefore, there's not as many organizations that are there for them. And that's that's not good. You know what I mean? Because I don't care if it's just two first responders that need help. Well, we need to help those two first responders. And so that's why I love that that organization is is uh, is including the two. And Operation, in, Operation During Warriors doing the same thing because we're, you know, we're all going through the same thing, the same trauma, and it should all be, we should be working together because I, I, I'd hate to think anyone um, that is in those positions that are willing to take on a job that is possibly going to affect you mentally and physically, and uh, but to know that there's an organization that's going to be there for you to help you get back on your feet. But yeah, I, I love that about Operation During Warrior. Absolutely. Well, speaking of nonprofits, I want to get some closing questions. Obviously, we'll talk about your book. But just before we do, talk to me about the No Excuse Charitable Fund. So I, when I got injured, there was 
uh, I, I found that there is not all nonprofits are the same. <laughs> you know, as an injured veteran, you know, I, I saw, oh, whoa, these are people are not doing anything good. You know, and then it really bothered me. There was a lot of uh, issues I dealt with when I first got injured. I had uh, an organization turn their back on me, which was at a time that I needed people the most. <laughs> um, but thankfully, I came through it. Um, but that I stuck with me. And when I started getting attention and then had a larger platform to, to share my story and talk about mental health and different things, I started my charitable fund, which, you know, I, I had heard that people can screw that up. Um, that sometimes people don't do things, the right things with their money. You know, maybe they build a tennis court or something. I don't know, but I, I was like, that's not going to happen to me. So I've got a third party that, that runs it in a board. And what I do with my charitable fund is, that money is donated only to different charities like uh, Sheepdog Impact Assistance, Operation During Warrior, my local YMCA, the sports programs, because fitness was big for me and helped me in my recovery. And so I I want kids to be active because you never know which child might need that. Um, They don't spend money on advertising. They let word of mouth do it. And it's amazing what they've able to done, the houses they built for injured veterans and and the lives they've, they've touched. So things like that. That's why I started my charity because I wanted to make sure that because there's a lot of good people in this world, in this country that want to support uh, veterans or people, whatever. They want to support organizations. And so I want to make that sure the organizations that are doing the things they should be doing are being recognized and supported. Beautiful. Well, I'm just going to throw some uh, closing questions at you. Um, the first thing, so you've written a book, so where can people find living with no excuses? Um, well, I mean, Amazon, I, my website, noahgalloway.com, uh, there should be a link, but it, it, Amazon would be the best bet to go there. You can find everything on Amazon. Um, yeah, uh, the book living with no excuses is a book about, you know, it talks about my childhood. It talks about the military. It talks about my injury, dance with the stars and everything. And I, I love to point out to people that it's a it's a fun book. You know, what I mean, I, I like to think I have a sense of humor. There's some some funny things in it, but the heart of that book is about my depression. And I am brutally honest. And when I say I'm brutally honest, that when I say that is because it was hard to do. I hired someone to help me do the book, and uh, it was hard to relive a lot of different things. And then when the book came out, I remember being terrified that all these people that loved me on Dance with the Stars. We're going to see a side of me that, that they weren't going to like, but I knew it was necessary because just like other people, you hear other people say, I did it because if one, if it could help one person, then it's did its job. And that's what my mindset was. And the response I've gotten from my book has been incredible. It, you know, it's not on the New York Times bestsellers list. Of course, when it came out, the only books that made the New York Times bestsellers list were about Trump and Hillary because it was right before the election. And so I kind of got covered up in that one. But the publishing company told me a year later, they said most books spike up in sales and then they drop. And mine went up and it just carried on. They said what's called a tail. They said that means that word of mouth, people are talking about it and they're buying it. So I'm more happy with that than making a list or even making money off of it. Of course, I, would, I wouldn't I would mind if more people would buy the book. I hear about people loaning to each other, and I'm like, dang, that is not helping me. <laughs> but I'm glad people love it. <laughs> well, it's interesting. There was a spike on books on Trump and Hillary in uh, 2020 as well, but I think that was because of a toilet paper shortage. 
Oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear that one. That was good. <laughs> All I, right. know, I joked and said I should have put them on the cover, even though they're not mentioned anywhere in it. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, it, this is yeah. the problem. Like, if that, if that, those human being stories are our bestsellers, then I think as a nation, we're looking at the wrong place for our information. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, then, speaking of books, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Sebastian Younger's The Tribe. I, I really, of course, you know, and I want to go back. I was thinking about it the other day. I want to go back and read it and see if, you know, since I've read it years ago and what I've learned since then and, and if I feel the same way. But that is, I do enjoy that book, uh, Sebastian Younger's The Tribe. And, you know, two other ones that, well, one of them is an author, Malcolm Gladwell, I love. And then I was just talking to my son. I want him to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad because, you know, I feel like that is – you know what? I'm gonna name. I'm sorry. I'm gonna name three books. Please. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, Sebastian Younger's The Tribe, Rich Dad Poor Dad, and I cannot believe I forgot that man's name. And then um, the other one is a book called Wild at Heart, and I haven't read that book in in years. But now that I just had my son, things have been popping up from that book. The author talks about a time that he was taking his two young boys and they were learning to rock climb. And his young younger son got up there. And he, when he got to the top, he said, Dan, he said, boy, that was awesome. You're a wild man. And he said later on, he was belaying his other son. And the younger one was standing next to him. And he says, Dad, am I really a wild man? He said that was a critical moment that he wanted to make sure that he acknowledged to his son, yes. You know what I mean? You got it. You know what I mean? You're awesome. You're a wild man because that's what he's, you know, our, our children want to hear those things from us. And I feel like that is a book that is really good on leadership and being a father. Beautiful. Man, I hadn't thought about that book in a while. I'm <laughs> well, going to have to get it back out. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to pull that one on, on my list as well. I've actually got um, Tribe sitting in front of me and he wrote a new one recently, Freedom. And Sebastian, I think he's been on here three times already, twice or three times, but he's coming back again in about two or three weeks. So I'm going to get to circle around yet again because I think his work is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, that is awesome. So is the, have you read Freedom already? Yes. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, Tribe, Tribe, I think, resonates more because it hits home so closely with the warrior, the first responder. Yeah. But Freedom is a look of... Um, just that, you know, the concept of freedom. We talk about freedom in this country versus, you know, again, as he likes to kind of reverse engineer the pre-modern times and what 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 is actually freedom and what are the things that are most important to us. Yeah, I, you know that I, the word freedom is an interesting thing because you know people love Americans are very oh we're free we're free but, you know but what is freedom? You know what I mean? What if hey I want to what if I want to improve my mental health and I want to do some work with psilocybin. Well, I can't. You know what I mean? Because there's laws against it. Of course, laws are important, so I'm not arguing that. But then, what is freedom? And I think most people that argue freedom, they're just arguing whether they can have a certain type of weapon or not. And uh, I just find that to be a little... That's just not my world. Yeah. No, I agree. 100%. I mean, freedom is, you know, just... I mean, It's funny, being an immigrant the concept of the american dream was very simple a little plot of land you know a roof over your family's head you know a place where your kids can play safely and then now it's devolved to jet skis and winnebago's and 
you know, all this crazy stuff. And it's like, what are the <laughs> fundamental things? Of course, you want safety and security, but we want more guns rather than maybe looking at why are our streets so violent? You know, there are drug prohibition yeah. laws and all these things. So, you know, a, a, arguing over a weapon. And I just did a post right before we started recording. Today is the year anniversary of the Avaldi shooting. 21 children and mm. two, you know, eight, 19 yeah. children and two teachers were murdered. And what happens every time we get one of these? We argue, or not we, I fucking don't. People argue over <laughs> guns rather than the multifaceted mental health, pharmaceutical, sleep deprivation, bullying, broken homes conversation mm -hmm. that is actually the yep. nucleus of this problem, of our gang problem, of so many areas that we are not the greatest country in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, there's uh, here in Alabama, there's a mayor in Birmingham, Mayor Woodfin, and He's done a lot of amazing things. I met with him not too long ago talking about what can I do to help um, with the city that has supported me so much. And he is one of those that he's like, hey, well, I want to improve the uh, reading comprehension of the students in Birmingham because they it's an inner city and the, and the scores are low and, you know, they want to improve that. And he's he wants to improve the city by starting with the children. You know, he said he wants an army of adults, you know, grownups going in and reading to the children because reading reading comprehension actually when you're read to you comprehend way better than when you read and it's really good for children to hear that as they improve their reading skills and start reading um and so i love that he's doing that because there's not enough of that there's not enough of that let's plan ahead let's what can we do to make this better and then not be an issue in the future and i think we we have there's Countries are showing different ways, and I think there are studies that could be done, but then politics get in it, and people just get, you know, they get on their side, and they they will not move. They won't budge. They won't listen, and I, we were all guilty of that. People don't like change. Humans don't like change. I've learned that as an amputee. I had a crappy prosthetic leg for a long time, even though there was better ones, and I wouldn't use an expensive prosthetic leg with a microprocessor in it until my... My process said, just give it a week. He said, humans don't like change, but if you give it a week, I promise you'll like it. Then after a week, I was like, why have I not been wearing this the entire time? You know, because we don't like change. And I think that's where people struggle when it comes to anything that has to do with if there are changes to a gun law or mental health or this and that. And I think that especially people who are, you know, I've got friends who are gun collectors. They love them. There's nothing wrong with that. But there should be, I do think there should be strict laws. But then when you talk about mental health, I think a lot of people are afraid to take care of their mental health because they're afraid if they're diagnosed with something that then they'll lose their right to a gun, especially if that's somebody who is paranoid that they're going to get overrun or I don't know, whatever people are scared of happening to them. Or they just like hunting and they don't want to lose that right. And so I get that. Uh, but people's mental health, I think, is way more important. Absolutely. And again, the middle ground is a little bit of both. I don't think that mm -hmm. an eight-year-old yes, should yeah. be able to play with a 50 cal in Gander Mountain. But I also don't <laughs> think that if you take all the guns from the good guys, that it's going to be good <laughs> in America in 2023 either. There is, a, there is a middle ground, and that's the problem. You've got to pull from both sides, and you'll find the truth in the middle. Yep. Yeah, and that's like, you know, I was talking to a buddy of mine. I'm, really, I, I'm one of those that when it comes to AI, I'm excited. You know what I mean? I want to see what it brings. Because it's going to change. Yeah. People, I think you want to hear about artists that think it's, or, you know, writers. No, I think it's just going to change the way we do things. But I had told a friend 
I was like, well, what if we, if, if an AI is asked a political question? And then it's like, as we discussed it, it's like most political questions, you could argue either side if you look at where the passion is, you know what I mean, or how you're viewing it. So I am interested in what will become of, I'd love to see an AI moderate a political debate <laughs> because then they could fact check you on the spot. Um, but yeah, I, um, I don't even know where I was going with that. <laughs> well, we were talking about the the middle ground and and taking the truth. Yeah, from, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, but yeah, how, you know, you could you could easily take from both sides, but it is it's that middle. And most things in politics are the extremist on one side and the other, and the rest of us are in the middle. Hundred percent, I agree completely. All right, well then, speaking of good people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? You know, I'll tell you somebody that would be, well, I don't, well, you know, well a, uh, a veteran, a combat veteran that is doing amazing things, and I think that I know I would enjoy listening to the podcast, and hopefully your listeners, there is a girl, a female veteran, Christy Ennis, I think her last name's Janice. She just got done trying uh, Everest for the second time. She's a tough, she's climbed a lot of mountains and, and Everest has held her back twice now, but I think she's going to go for a third. And yeah, she's a pretty spectacular person. I actually had her on a few years ago, but I want to circle around with her because um, I just saw the pictures of her face when she came down. Yes. The last one. Oh my yes. God, she got battered. That's why I was like, dang, she's tough. <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know, that, um, yeah, we've, I've never even met her in person. And I think she has family that lives in Alabama because, you know, we've uh, messaged back and forth in the past, but we've never, ever, never met in person. Yeah. Cause she lost her leg, if I remember rightly, on the helicopter crash. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. And I was, I was assuming it was military. Good. I was right. Yeah. No, amazing. Now, story. What are, now, do, you, do you know the name Derek Weeder? Um, I do, and I haven't. I haven't um, tried to reach out to Derek. Yeah, because I know I, I've followed him for quite a few years on social media. Um, I would assume when I first started following him, he was probably in. Um, I would imagine a pretty bad place mentally. But then he's mm-hmm. he's had this evolution now, and now he's you know got. It seems like he's got into CrossFit a lot, and then just uh, seems to be so much better now. So that's another guy oh, I would yeah. love to. Yeah, that guy. You know, because I've always been impressed that. Yeah, he has a huge following. Has never even done any TV or anything. He just has earned it. Like has built it. People love him, and I I think he's he's just an awesome guy. Oh, you want Brett Michaels? We and him are good friends. The singer. Yeah, absolutely. It's the funny if you look at my guest list. Um, I've got John Travolta and Josh Brolin on there. I mean, to me, if they're good people. It, you know, it's yeah. some people are just, as you know, you, you know, you sat with Ellen and some of these other people, some good people happen to be comedians or actors or singers, but they're good people. So to me, you know, if, if that's someone that you vouch for, I think it'd be amazing. Brett, I met Brett before Dancing with the Stars, any of that. I met him and then we just kind of hit, then we ran across each other again. Then we started just, you know, staying, then we get together and he is one of those after I'll tell you what, after I was on Dance with the Stars, right after I was, you know, everybody wants to be your friend. You know, what I mean, everybody wants something. And then when things slow down and stop, those people disappear. And Brett's not one of those people. Brett didn't care 
that I wasn't on Dance with Stars before, was proud of me when I was on it. And, you know, it doesn't care. It just wants to be, you know, we're just friends. And that is who he is. And that is amazing. And if you'll, if you get a chance, if you interview him, you'll, if you ever meet him, you'll know it. He is a genuine person. And I'll tell you what, it's impressive what he does. Because when he does his shows, whether it's with Poison or Brett Michaels by himself, he has so much energy. And he looks so much better than his, <laughs> than the rest of the guys and gals that are on tour when it was, you know, uh, you had um, Poison and, oh, Def Leppard. And, uh, oh, my God, what's the other big band from the 80s? Why am I drawing a blank? Not White Snake. I was listening to all of those, though, so I'm, I'm trying to think as well because yeah. I, I had but all anyway, the Poison albums. Yeah, he's in much better shape than everyone else. You know, he's had a lot of health issues, and so that has made him have to be a little healthier. And so he is – I mean, just look up the rest of the singers from his – he's doing great. Yeah, I'll read – I'll ask him if you want uh, – to see about him coming on there that would be amazing i'm like i would love that because like i said the, i think the barrier to some of these people in these you know more well-known famous positions is a lot of times it's the you know whether it's paparazzi or you know the the five minute bit on a television show a lot of them don't get the chance to just be them be normal people and that's what's so so nice when i get some of these people that are very well known on here you know, I, I, I usually it's like, oh, that was really fun. I'm like, it's supposed to be fun. <laughs> it's not attacking. Yeah. It's not, you know, there's no ulterior motive. It's just as you and I have. It's just a conversation between two people. So, uh, yeah, if it's something he'd be interested in, I'd be honored. All right. Yes, I would definitely ask him. Yeah, because he is a great guy. He is a really good guy. Brilliant. All right. If anybody else, if I think of anybody else, I'll let you know also. I appreciate it. Well, no, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, as you mentioned, we've been friends on social media for a while. You know, mm -hmm. The Operation Enduring Warrior family um, you know, is an incredible group of people. But I've wanted to speak to you for a long time now. And I'm so, so glad that we not only got to chat, but got to go to some of these very important areas that we've discussed. Because as I mentioned, our professions are notorious for kind of buying into that two-dimensional you know, masculinity myth. And when I have these warriors, some of whom have, you know, overcome severe, you know, wounds from combat and, and all kinds of other injuries, their vulnerability, their humility is really what resonates. And it kind of debunks the, the myths of these, you know, masculinity things that put a lot of our men and women into the ground. So I want to thank you so much, not only for coming on, but for being vulnerable and courageous today. Well, thank you. It, it, it means a lot. I was excited about uh, coming on to the podcast and I've really enjoyed our conversation because, yeah, it has been just a conversation. And hopefully there's not too much editing you have to do of me uh, losing my train of thought or going off on random tangents because I've just enjoyed it like we just were on a phone call just talking. And thank you for that, James. I've really enjoyed it.